Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There they sit at the bottom of the ocean floor, glimmering in the moonlight inside a dream so real a wake feels fake. Can I just stay here where dark is home? No fear, where light marks the path of its seer. They were laid long ago, waiting to be discovered, ready to hatch for the soul. There they rise on the bottom of the ocean floor. Diani's new album, Under, is now available on all platforms. Hey, I'm Anupa Mystery. Welcome back to another episode of Burnout, a podcast featuring short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists from Toronto and beyond. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. Don't be you remember July? It was only a couple of months ago and I was sitting right where I'm sitting now at my desk with the fan blowing and the windows open and just sweating. And I remember that so clearly because it was on a very hot day that I turned off the fan, closed my windows, turned on my mic and called it Matthew Progress. A couple of months earlier, I'd seen a video essay that he made, which was commissioned by Toronto's NIA Center for the Arts. The film is called 10, A Decade in Review, and I'll link to it in the show notes for you. 10 loosely collages a decade of people, movements and moments that comprise Black Toronto. And what was interesting to me and why I wanted to talk to Matthew is the way that Ten's release seemed to collapse time. The public launch happened the week that the summer's widespread Black Lives Matter protests kicked off. And I was thinking about the way that systematic oppression compresses time, how we're constantly caught in these looping standoffs and conflicts and the ways in which, and and I read this from Paul Gilroy, This constant appeal for justice keeps immigrants or racialized communities stuck in an infinite present, devoid of histories. And so I was curious about how Matthew experienced this moment as someone who's working in the archives. We spoke about the film and our meditation routines. And because he's also a musician, we also talked about the slow unfolding of not just one, but multiple creative voices. My name is Matthew Progress. Um, I am... I make things, you know, and I don't want (laughs) to, I hate to give the like intentionally stripped down, uh, I don't care creative explanation, but, uh, I, I really, I think I'm at a place where I don't want to describe myself as much more. I, I, I make things, I care about making things of different, different types and forms. And I don't know if this is kind of COVID lockdown inspired, but I've been thinking a lot about, the egotism of making art mm. and this idea of force of being forced into self description as an artist when you're writing grants and when you're, you know, 
having conversations with other creatives that you're running into on the street or whatever, or talking to on the phone or, um, and just how can I cut through to like, what's at the bottom of my creative inspiration. And I, I think I just want to make things like, I just want to translate ideas. And some of that translation includes music and film. Yes. <laughs> just to make it easy for people. <laughs> yes, yes. Some of it includes music and film and writing as well. Part of your going inside of yourself has also been walking walking through High Park. That's right. Well, actually, <laughs> I uh when I when I hit you up the other day, I was very inspired by your trail walking via Instagram. Uh, I feel like maybe you should start a second Instagram page. It's like, like a you know, like an IG trail walker, and you like you promote different trails, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or a hiker, I should say. Um, but I I ended up hiking on the Humber River Recreational Trail, which was awesome. But it was actually part of a, an annual summer solstice tradition that I have, where I fast for the day and take a very big dose of mushrooms and I find an outdoor space that I haven't explored yet. And, you know, I just let it do what it does. And this year was very tough. This year was not fun. It was not fun. I'm not going to lie. It was, there was a lot to confront. It didn't feel good, but it felt necessary. So I applaud you. You know, all I've been doing is talking about COVID and the uprisings and whatever, whatever. I haven't taken any quiet moments to actually confront these things and just sit there and like feel the weight of them and realize that I don't have anything I can do about it. And so psychedelics will help you do that if you need to. I have like a, I would say three to four times a week meditation ritual and I kind of, on the winter solstice and the summer solstice, I have larger rituals that help me sort of reset all the smaller meditations. And so in the winter, I do a 24-hour uh, water fast where I only have water and I kind of stay inside. And then the summer is like a more outdoor psychedelic experience. I kind of just have a, a prayer that I've kind of like built over the years that really just reflects kind of what I would like the kind of relationship I would like to have with the universe. You know, it's rooted in thankfulness and just kind of affirmations. And I also pour libation. Mm. Um, so just pour out some water in a plant that I have. And I was raised in a Pan-African tradition, which, you know, I know a lot of like continental Africans and they look at Pan-Africanism as like a over-romanticized thing which like it is in a lot of ways but it's helpful to a lot of us here in the diaspora um and yeah i was raised in a in a very pan-african tradition um so i always knew about libation and you know calling the ancestors and these kind of things so my spiritual practice is very informed by a lot of that right that's basically it it's short like i don't sit there and meditate for an hour okay. as much as i respect those who can do that yeah when I teach yoga and we like do a bit of meditation at the end, I'm like the real yoga is a meditation or that's how I see it anyway. Um, like you're mm -hmm. the whole practice is about preparing you for the end. So the whole point is to like, be able to like get your body to a state where you can sit still and just breathe. And so mm -hmm. when I teach it, you know, um, the, the guidance that I offer is like right now it, 
you're just sitting and breathing. Like, tell right. your mind that's what you're doing. I'm just sitting here and I'm breathing. Your mind is allowed to wander. And I, I say allowed because I actually really like offering that permission, you know? Um, yeah, 100%. That's, that that's, such a in, that's such an interesting way to describe yoga. And I've actually never thought of it like that. Um, and I, I feel like that about mindfulness as well. Like mindfulness is so much more of a threatening word than it is a function, if that makes sense. Like, it's like when you tell someone about mindfulness or you say that word, I think people who don't like meditate, they're like, oh my God, like that's like some life. It's like, what's that meditation that uh, Rick Rubin does? Oh, Tran tran yeah. Transcendental. Like, it's like, you hear that and you're like, do I have to like transform my life? But <laughs> it's really just about being honest about what's in your mind and and confronting it and allowing it to exist. Yeah. So, yeah. Actually, I like saying all you're doing is sitting and breathing because it's reminding yourself that you're actually doing something, right? Because in that moment, yes. you get the urge to like think or get up and like do your task list or whatever. And it's like, no, right now I'm doing something. I'm sitting and I'm breathing, mm -hmm. you know? Anyway. Yeah. I'm a fly, I'm a die. Right now is karma time. Right now is karma time. I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive But I feel like I'm a star I feel like I'm a star So, you know, literally as like everything popped off You put out this short film called Ten <laughs> In partnership yeah. with the Nia Center um, mm -hmm. And it's about a decade of black culture in Toronto um, Yes I watched it the day, like that Thursday. Um, but like there was this cognitive dissonance because the news was just getting so frantic. Um, and I think that was the same night that um, Regis Korczynski Paquette died. I think. I can't remember now. Yes. Yeah. It was. It was. So and like a couple days after George Floyd, exactly. I think. So it was yeah. like George Floyd happened and then all of a sudden this thing happened like up the street here, right? Mm. From me. Um, what were you thinking? I think my first most superficial thought was, oh my God, I'm going to look like an opportunist. Mm. Like I'm going to look like I woke up and saw the news and like tried to scramble this thing together and like ride this wave. Um, But I tend to have like paranoid thoughts like that sometimes. So I, you know, I exercised that thought through mindfulness <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and I just, you know, when people's comments and sentiments about the film started to roll in and I saw that, you know, people that who I didn't even know, like people, you know, people who I, I personally know that I've never seen share anything about my work before, sharing really heartfelt things, people talking about the cathartic value of it, people just talking about it, giving them some peace in this moment, et cetera. Like when those started to roll in, I really felt like overwhelmed with gratefulness and, you know, this really strong feeling that this is a piece of work that may have came through me, but it's like owned by the community. And I really love that feeling. And I don't get to feel that very often as an artist. I think I'm always trying to create something that can make me feel that way. 
Um, and with 10, it was like, you know, it came on my plate very late. There was a huge time crunch to get it done. I had a very direct inspiration as to how I wanted it to look. And I just locked myself away for three weeks and like got it done like that. And it was, it was just a very pure act of, of creation that really never felt like it had much ego in it. Do you want to, can you describe, um, just like briefly, like what, what it is, it's a video essay, a video collage. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the form is weird. I, I, it's, it's, I'm calling it like a, a video collage short film, um, or video assemblage is another term that gets used a lot. Um, and really it's, it's a collection of clips, um, from various forms of media, uh, including feature films, news clippings, and everything in between, um, along with a small amount of original produced, uh, footage, um, put together to music in segments. Um, and it's meant to tell the story of the last 10 years of, of black culture in Toronto. Um, so you mentioned you had this short timeline and you kind of had to lock yourself away you, and that you did have a vision kind of going in. But I'm curious um, what you uncovered along the way throughout that process, because I feel like no matter what we work on, we go in with one idea and comes out maybe not drastically different i watched hundreds of hours of footage and downloaded an insane amount of things um and so i went in with this mindset of like i have to meticulously execute this thing but what i discovered i think was the beauty of messiness Mm. you know the the how how small of an amount of curation I had to put into it. I mean, I did, obviously I I curated it, but the way that when you focus on a region and you have a specific interest, a concerted interest in a people from a region and you're of that people and I'm kind of combing through the internets with that, spiritual approach like what kind of just presents itself is pretty amazing when the the task of summing up the past 10 years of black folks in this city uh came to me and i and i sat with that idea it 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 it, uh, it was and is a ping pong of emotions for me um and i think that's just kind of what came through I think uh, the death segment in the center of the movie is the first thing that I, the first idea that came to me, um, specifically um, the voices of um, mothers and family members who had lost um, young men to, young black men to gun violence. Um, I wanted to hear them without any visual Um yeah, and then I just kind of built out from there, and I I kind of just thought of it one segment at a time. I didn't even order the segments until closer towards the end of the process. The other thing I should say, too, is, you know, I had been working a lot in video assemblage and video collage um, just privately for some time now, at least a year. 
um or so and i just haven't really released anything i put some small videos up on instagram um but i hadn't really put anything out so i was ready for this project it kind of just presented itself at a perfect time how did or why did it's gonna sound stank when i say why did nia center approach you to do that but but why why yeah how did that partnership come about or why did nia center approach you to make a film given that you're kind of primarily known as a musician I don't think it sounds stank or dry at all in Toronto speak. Um, a big part of your professional endeavors as a creative have to do with uh, uh, putting yourself up for a job, you know, that maybe wasn't even being offered to you. So Nia actually hit me up to, for people I may recommend to do this work. Mm. Um uh, and I recommended myself. I, I think I also come from this kind of middle era of Toronto um, mm. where we've seen like a major changing of the guard. Um, yes. And we, you know, people in our age range represent this sort of middle ground where we we know this this older place, this Northern Touch era Toronto. And we know deeply the Drake era as well. We know scarcity. We know scarcity. We know grittiness. We know when the city was a much more dangerous place, you know, not to say that it's not still dangerous, but, you know, I grew up downtown and it it just was a different place. Mm -hmm. Um, We know the Moses Neimer chum Mm -hmm. uh, empire era Mm -hmm. and what that did to our culture. Um, 10, watching 10 should not, it should not be as a unique of, of an experience as it is. And, you know, black identity is constantly, is constantly compartmentalized and fragmented and we never get a fulsome identity that white people constantly get. Um, you know, it's this, it's this classic idea of like, you know, pitching a film to like some studio in LA and like you can, make a white film about the person that invented post-it notes, you know, but a black film has to be about some type of major pain or like, you know, athletics or Mm -hmm. one of the constant, one of the classic stereotypes. And uh, yeah, for me, it was just really important to tell a full story of who we are. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you describe that? Like, what is the full story? And I, and I only I say that with the caveat that like there isn't one black experience, also, right? Like, every yeah. black person experiences life very differently, um, which is kind of like the the fallacy, also, and the idea of like, you know, there can only be one narrative for <laughs> yeah. a very disparate group of people, right? But um, you know, you you talked about, you just said, you know, you wanted to present the full story. So I guess what is the full story to you? What is the in-between space between like pain on the one hand and then like very kind of 
cliched images of success and triumph on the other. Yeah. Uh, um, um, we, I should say as well, uh, with 10, Nia did not only just commission me to, to make it. Um, we also sat down as a collective and sort of agreed on a master list of, uh, some achievements that need to be included. Um, so, you know, the Raptors, obviously. Um, and then some of the people in the uh, early achievements, or like there's two different achievement sections. One is more like, I guess, diverse achievements. And the other one is like people who became global famous. Hmm. So your weekends and Winnie Harlow's and et cetera. And then the other section, and within the other section that you have um, – you know, photo laureates and people who won the Giller Prize and, you know, uh, some, there was an NCAA athlete that I had never heard of. And these were, I, I surveyed a few community members. We also sat at a table with Nia and we kind of, um, decided on a master list. So what was included in, in those sections was a collective, um, kind of research that happened. Um, but to answer your question as to what the full story is, this last 10 years, the black community in Toronto has experienced the most kind of like outside attention, um, Mm -hmm. that we probably ever have. Um, I would potentially venture to say inside attention too, right? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um, and maybe even the most self attention like we've even looked at ourself in a more grand way than mm. we may may have ever have um and that might be looking at individuals in a grand way rather than our whole community um so when i sit down and think about the moments that defined 2010 to 2020 i think deeply about blm I think deeply about the horizontal gun violence that we continue to experience. Um, And I think deeply about all the achievements and notoriety. Um, And I'm not a big sports fan, but the amount of folks that came out for the Raptors, I think deeply about that. And then the thing that really sums it all up and what the intro of the film was all about is that during this decade like every other community we moved our lives into the internet and we moved onto devices and we became digitized mm-hmm. digitized and visible in yes a way. yeah and with through our own means you know finally this idea of being able to export your story without any say so from anyone else you know and i think that's you know super powerful and also deadly <laughs> Mm, say more about that if you if you want um well i mean i look at the young generation um i have younger siblings and i see uh the 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 torch being passed down uh or i should say the torch not being passed down in a far more aggressive way than with my generation all the time mm. living online 
I think in a lot of ways has caused us to forget about real life. Um, and even just like something as simple as like the summertime, when the summertime comes, how we used to spend the whole summer outside. And, you know, I watched my younger siblings spend every day inside all summer. And it's like, Pre-pandemic? Pre-pandemic. There is a lot of like strange, almost opportunism that's happening that's maybe not attached to, uh, you know, getting a check, but it's virtue opportunism. Yeah, visibility. You know? Yeah. And it's this, you know, it's this commodifying of struggle. It's this, you know, the amount of people that I've seen, you know, uh, become you know or or organize protests or become part of the leadership of protests and then run home from the protests to post pictures of themselves holding up signs and saying stuff on the mic as though they just finished playing a show <laughs> um <laughs> you know like i don't know what type of activism that is and i just and i'm not it's not to say that egotism and performance haven't always been a part of activism because I think they have yes, 100%. Definitely. Um, and I'm not, I wouldn't for a second let, you know, earlier generations of activists off the hook no. because charisma is why we have narratives around Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Of course. And, yeah. Not to mention the crippling patriarchy um, of earlier generations. And and now, but specifically of earlier generations in 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 the activism and so called conscious space, even in this city, you know, um, but there's something that the internet does to really make that aspect, that egotism in the as in the activism explode, mm. you know, and and I'm seeing it every day, you know, and. Then it's this weird thing where like, okay, as somebody who's been interested in social justice and progressive thinking for a long time, like, do I become like the old uncle right now and get angry at everyone? And then am I like some conscious curmudgeon? Like I'm just sitting here like upset about everything that <laughs> <laughs> So like when then like I feel myself going there sometimes and I'm like, wait, did I really just tweet that like angry dad tweet right now? Like I need to like come off of it. So, I yeah. will say that, like, I already felt like I was, like, moving into auntie territory. But, like, in the last month, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, full on. Yeah. All the way. When we started this, there was about 10 tents. Now we're over 100. You think we're at a trailer park? I should start charging a mission. In the middle of an overdose crisis and a housing crisis, a pandemic happened. We were supposed to shelter in place, but there were outbreaks in the shelters, so a lot of people ended up pitching tents. I have four tents put together all in one. It looks like a condo. I have a balcony and uh, and my gazebo. And <laughs> I'm Olia Pavani. We Are Not the Virus is a four-part podcast series that takes you inside Toronto's encampments. Each episode, you'll hear from residents about the creative ways they're making a home in one of the most expensive cities in the world. From what I know, you started off as a rapper, and you're still making music. 
I am. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember you from a group called Freedom Writers. <laughs> so Freedom Writers <laughs> mm-hmm. was you. It was. Theo3, Frankie Payne, uh, Tona. Tona, and Adam Bob. That's right. Freedom Writers was a collective of MCs and one producer, uh, Big Sprocks. It's the one name that you um, right. didn't say there. That, yeah, we came together very organically. I mean, I come from a very sort of backpack, boom bap type hippity hip hop backgrounds. We all, um, we've, we, we've all had that, that, <laughs> that phase in our lives, I think. Sure. I mean, honestly, that was my, I would say like my first love musically. Mm. Um, I mean, I was always a student of film, like even all the way back in high school. But but like my real first love of music and film was very much like New York 90s, all things New York 90s. And I still absolutely love that era. It's still my favorite time and place. Boot camp, boot camp click for life. You know, like <laughs> boot camp click, Black the whole moon. nine. <laughs> Black moon, sure. I mean, I could go on and on for days. Um Anyways, coming out of that kind of tradition in the city and as a kid in high school, listening to Project Bounce every night and um, early days flow. And I had always listened to uh, people like Theo3 and Tona and Frankie Payne and Adam Baum. And so I was kind of like the young cat and we all just recorded at the same studio with Big Sprocks and they had been doing some work together, a few collab songs here and there. And then I jumped on one song and then the idea came up like we should just do an album. And it was really that simple. And actually Mathematic, who's like a Toronto idol mm-hmm. of mine, was originally in the Freedom Writers as well too um, for the first album. Was that like the first project that you did? Well, I had made some music before. I'd actually been in a couple other groups um you know in high school and stuff and just after high school just getting started out um so but i hadn't really put out any music on like a bigger scale so that was the first kind of official thing that i ever did wait so like Which, you the first thing you did was with people who you like idolized or respected anyway <laughs> yeah no idolize is the right word yeah wow yeah, it was really surreal. I guess I'm interested in that in Freedom Writers not only because it was like your first kind of official project, but I did a quick Google and the Bandcamp page came up and the description said that Freedom Writers is a collective geared toward making politically and socially conscious music. What did that mean to you then? Like what did social what did conscious mean to you back then? <laughs> Full disclosure, like I was raised in an activist family. My dad is one of the founding members of the Black Action Defense Committee, mm. Bad C, which is like a, well, was a very well-known, um, you know, black activism group based in the city. So, you know, I was I was raised, you know, on Marcus Garvey and, and Malcolm X and et cetera. Um, so I always had, uh, a certain type of politic, even in high school. And so around that time, uh, the music I was making 
as a like as a solo entity before I met any of those guys was a lot more political than the music we ended up making as a collective. Mm. Like Freedom Riders was kind of the least political thing I was really doing at that time. Um, I was involved in a lot of other things. Um, I was in school to become a social worker and I was involved in actual activism. So I didn't really see the music as like real activism, but I was like, this is a big platform. So like, let's try and incorporate something of substance into this music. I don't know how successful we were at doing that as I listen back, but this, there's definitely, <laughs> there's definitely records though that I really still think go hard and there's still important bars in there. So what were your goals back then? Like, as I didn't have any, hmm. I didn't have any, that was part of the problem. I didn't have any goals. I didn't know. I think I was living in this like political construct so much that I didn't, I hadn't discovered my artistic voice. Um, you know, I care just as much now about the abstract as I do about the literal. Um, and I, I didn't, I wish I could have discovered that at an early age, but I, I honestly think that being with, those idols of mine at such a young age in such a formal way actually in some ways like blocked my own self-discovery as an artist. I spent a lot of my teenage years idolize, idolizing that style of hip hop and specifically like these people in my city. And so when I came to a place where I was rubbing shoulders with them and making music with them. A lot of it was about trying to impress them and trying to like keep up and like respect the culture and sort of living in this construct mm -hmm. rather than like going internally like you need to do as an artist and finding a unique voice, finding your deeper interests. Um, so when did that thinking shift for you? Like when did you... Because I think a lot of people fall prey to that mentality, right? I really loved the latest, the last one that you have posted, and I can't remember her name. She's like multidisciplinary artist. She lives out west, Indian. Uh, oh, uh, Vivek. Vivek. Vivek, yeah. yeah, yeah. I loved, I loved this narrative of like, re-understanding mm. success as an artist and because it's so many of my friends had pop star dreams or had like big dreams for a career in the arts and we're all now at this age where we're sort of reconciling those dreams and 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 building a life and a structure that can include our creative talents and our passions in a sustainable way. And like, I'm so excited about that. And I think it's like a sad thing for a lot of people. And it was sad for me for a bit, but now I'm like ecstatic about it. I find it really exciting to say no to things. And it's not, oh it's my not God. like so everything exciting. is come Like sometimes I'm like, you, know, you shouldn't say no to that. You could really use the money, but I'm very like, I just have to invite in like the thing that I want to do. Yes. Well, and I think that 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 dream that's like uh, 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 
that that like archetype dream or that construct dream that we all have to let go of it's actually a prison like it's so confining right and so i think it's uh it's evidence that you've let go of that dream to be able to say no to stuff so anything that was on that trajectory that would have came across your plate like how you spiritually felt about that thing or how you emotionally felt about that thing would have been like an afterthought to you. You wouldn't have even considered those things. And I think it's like very freeing to have that stuff as like top of mind, you know, like when I get a potential opportunity, like for me, it's like, how much does that reflect what I believe my purpose to be as mm -hmm. a human being, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and and does it feel healthy spiritually and and that's it and like the thing i realize is when you follow that strictly the money will definitely come like you'll get the money you don't have to worry about like and you still have to say yes to things and make compromises of, of course, course but yeah. like that's life you know what what does keep you going now um my health keeps me going. Like mm -hmm. the feeling of vitality is like, has just become so important to me. Like I can't even express with words, like how important it is for me to feel strong and vibrating high. And just to know that I'm useful to the people around me when I'm in that state, like it's super, super helpful. And I get a lot of motivation from that. And just to know that I have, I have resigned myself to being an artist and a creative until I die. And so I'm committed to being open f uh, for the next idea. And so the idea that I could, the, the thought that I could wake up to a new idea that I could become deeply inspired by tomorrow is enough to keep me going as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of Burnout. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast. It helps people find the show. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Burnout Pod. Or if you want to know more about what's rattling around in my old brain, you can subscribe to the Burnout newsletter at anupa.substack.com. The theme music is by Lal. The song is called Dark Beings. Original music provided by Jamal Padmore and artwork by Ahmad Studio. Thanks so much for your attention. Talk to you soon.